Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Julia Ravy. This week, the medical breakthrough of a potential malaria vaccine. We find out how unmonitored sewage is polluting our beaches, but may also help with a sulphur shortage. And we ask if similar looking strangers may share a similar genetic makeup. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up this week, malaria affects millions of people every year in the tropics and the majority of the deaths from the disease are in young children. It's one of those diseases that's been crying out for a vaccine for decades but it has proved a very difficult nut to crack. The malaria parasite has a very complex life cycle and thousands of genes make it hard to disentangle how it actually works and how best to treat it. But this month, UNICEF have awarded a contract that's worth nearly $200 million to drug giant GSK to make millions of doses of a promising new vaccine candidate that's called RTS, which will be supplied for children who are at risk in the key malaria hotspots. Mary Hemmel leads the malaria vaccine team at the World Health Organization. This uh, vaccine is made up of a protein and what's called an adjuvant, something that stimulates the immune system to uh, work a little better. The vaccine targets the very first stage of the malaria parasite when the female mosquito injects the parasite into the human host. The vaccine stimulates the immune system to make antibodies against the parasite so that the disease does not progress. And how effective is it? The phase three trials showed that the vaccine could reduce malaria in young children by over half and severe malaria by about the same. Now, we're used to hearing about vaccines that are 90% efficacious, but when you have a disease like malaria, where children can have malaria infections six, seven, eight times per year till they build up their acquired immunity, they're at risk of progressing to severe malaria and death. Reducing those cases by 50% can really be substantial. Yeah, I was going to say with a disease that's killing up to a million people a year, 50% of that is still a massive saving of lives, isn't it? That's exactly right. And we've seen just this in the pilot implementations. And this present announcement is 
an award of, of a large tranche of funding to get those vaccines manufactured and then out there into the field. That's right. This is really a major milestone. Uh, right now, over a million children have benefited from the vaccine in the pilot programs in Malawi, Kenya, and Ghana. This uh, award and this contract between UNICEF and the manufacturer means that millions more children will benefit in other countries. There can be expansion. But there is a challenge here, and that is that the demand for this vaccine is very high. There are more than 25 million children who live in these areas of high risk for malaria and severe malaria. And that means that at a steady state, it's estimated that over 80 million doses of vaccine will be needed each year. So this is a challenge that WHO, Gavi, and other partners are working on now as a priority. There's a what, what's called a market shaping team that's working specifically to find ways to increase supply and decrease cost so that this vaccine can reach all these children who are living at risk. So where do you see the numbers going? Once this money starts to flow, once these vaccines start to make their way into the field, if we have this conversation in five years' time and you're looking back, what will you say happened since? I think what we will be seeing five years from now is that there's more than one vaccine available that prices come down substantially, that the global health architecture that was put in place uh, to support vaccines reaching these children who are living in these areas of high need, that that has been successful and that that continues with a major impact in child deaths. Well, let's hope she's right. That was Mary Hamill there from the World Health Organization. Mary mentioned that the present RTS malaria vaccine has some shortcomings and also that she suspects there will be other new vaccine candidates joining the fight against malaria very soon. Well, right on cue, this week, researchers at the University of Washington have published some encouraging data from a clinical trial they've been running using a live malaria vaccine that they've developed. Long term, they'll make the vaccine in a test tube. But for now, while they work out its feasibility, and effectiveness, they're testing it by using mosquitoes themselves to vaccinate people. Sean Murphy. The world needs a very highly effective malaria vaccine. And while a new vaccine was approved late last year, the efficacy of that vaccine is not as high as we would like. So one of the most successful ways to make vaccines is to take the organism that causes the disease and to weaken it and turn it into a vaccine. People have been trying to do that for malaria for actually decades. And this study showed that this could be a very effective approach. So how have you weakened it? Well, the DNA of the malaria parasite has more than 5,000 genes. And leading up to this study, some of the researchers involved figured out some genes that were really important for the parasite to survive in your liver. And if they made changes to the DNA so that those genes no longer worked, they found that now the parasite couldn't make it through the liver stage and therefore couldn't go on to cause like disease that we would see with a normal parasite. How did you test this then? Because obviously malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes normally. So how would you vaccinate a person? So in this study, we actually used the mosquitoes as tiny little flying syringes because the form of the parasite that serves as the vaccine 
we can only right now make it in mosquitoes. And what we know is that if people get about a thousand mosquito bites with these weakened parasites, they can end up being protected against a later what we call challenge with mosquitoes that carry the regular old malaria parasite. How on earth do you persuade people to get a thousand mosquito bites? Yeah, well, first of all, it's not a thousand in one sitting. Let me be clear about that. The bites were administered about 200 bites per sitting. And some people had some pretty intensely itchy arms after that. And so we, you know, pay a lot of attention to how to limit that. But within a matter of a few days, usually that went away. But that was our strategy for vaccinating and that the volunteers were really wonderful and generous of their time. And what happened when these people got these hundreds of mosquito bites? Did they mount a malaria response? It's very clear that the people definitely mounted an immune response. We can see that people are making antibody responses against the parasite. But we also know that there are probably immune responses that we cannot measure when we just take blood from a vein. And that's why the challenge model is so important for us to actually be able to measure whether we succeeded or didn't with the vaccine. And when you say challenge model, this is you coming along later and physically trying to infect people with malaria for real to see if they're protected by the prior exposure to the weakened vaccine strain. Yeah, that's correct. And we challenge them with usually five mosquito bites. We follow them for the emergence of the parasites in their blood, which would indicate that whatever we were trying to protect against in the liver did or did not work. So someone who had a good vaccine response wouldn't have the parasites emerging in their blood ever because they would be completely protected. And we can follow that really closely. And is that what you saw? So what we saw in this study was that half of the vaccinated people were completely protected against infection. It's a very high bar to achieve complete protection against, because even just one of the parasites that comes from the mosquito can go on to ignite the blood stage infection later on. So, you know, 99% reduction is not enough. You really have to achieve 100% eradication of the parasite in your liver. What this study tells us is that this genetically attenuated parasite approach is actually quite uh, promising. And the reason that we're not disappointed that we didn't get 100% protection is that we know that if we put the vaccine in by needle and syringe, it's likely to have a higher rate of protection. And that's because every time we give mosquito bites, the vaccine is to some extent stopped in its tracks right there in the skin. But if we give it by a needle and syringe, it's likely that more of the vaccine will get to the liver. And if it gets to the liver, we think more of it will be able to do its purposeful role as a vaccine. I don't know how willing I would be to sign up to that trial, but very promising results there from Sean Murphy. And that result has just come out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. The primary way for the farm pigs was really to nose the joystick up and down. We review the biggest releases. You can easily sit down, play it, switch off, a bit like Crash Bandicoot, but instead you're inside a horror movie. And because there's a simulator for almost anything, we play some of the strangest ones available. I'm kind of like dragging the pigs. The pigs are laying eggs and then coins are coming out of the eggs. 
the Naked Gaming podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Julia Ravy on the way. How much sewage is tipping into our seas? Stay tuned to find out if you dare. But before that, in the digital age, misinformation and fake news have become major obstacles. Dodgy stories can spread like wildfire. Drugs for treating COVID, 5G and vaccines have all been recent victims of misinformation campaigns propagated online. So how can we counter the threat? According to Cambridge University's John Rosenbeek, who published a study on this this week, the answer is to show people how to recognise the telltale signs of a social media porky. John, how have you gone about trying to teach people how to recognise facts from fiction online? The way we've gone about doing that is basically by creating a couple of very short videos of about a minute and a half long. And each of these videos shows you a way in which people might be manipulated online, uh, for example, by playing into your emotions, right? Like if you write a headline that is intensely emotional, seeks to evoke fear, anger, outrage, and so on, it diverts your attention away from the accuracy of that headline in some way. But if you can point that out, for example, in a video, people actually become less susceptible to that kind of manipulation. And with these videos, where did you play them? Um, So we did a bunch of lab studies first to see, well, is there a proof concept here, right? Because if you don't do lab studies first, then you can't really do anything else. Um, And that turned out to work really well. And then after that, we went to YouTube. So we ran these videos as YouTube ads. So about five million-ish people, I think, uh, could have seen this video or one of these videos as a YouTube ad. And then after that, we asked these people a single question, meaning we gave them a headline. Do you think any kind of manipulation is being used in this headline? If so, please identify it. And they gave, they got a number of response options, right? A couple of um, uh, options to choose from. And um, they could be wrong or correct. And then we had a control group as well, which didn't see any of the videos, but they did get the survey question. And then what what we wanted to see was, are the people who watched the video better at this than the control group? And they were. With the videos being on YouTube, I know YouTube ads you know, a lot of people skip YouTube ads. Is there a way that if you rolled these out to protect people against misinformation online, that we could definitely make sure people are watching these ads, taking them in and not just skipping over them? Uh, so the the response rate was about 20%, 19% approximately, meaning of all of the people who were shown the ad, about 19% actually watched them for a meaningful period of time. So that was quite nice. And the way that we've tried to do that was by, um, well... <laughs> making the videos a bit more fun than usual, I suppose, like trying not to be boring, which scientists have a have a habit of doing. Um, and so, for example, we uh, in every video, we used an example from pop culture, Star Wars, Family Guy, South Park, and so on, right, uh, to explain how these manipulation techniques might be used. Um, so, for instance, there's a scene in, in Star Wars uh, Episode 3, I believe, um, where Anakin Skywalker, who's just about to turn evil, turn to the bad side, uh, tells Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy, right? Which is a telltale example of a false dichotomy, which is one of the techniques that we wanted to train people to recognize, which is to say you're presented with two options when in reality there's actually more, right? You can be critical of Anakin, but also not be his enemy, right? There's a third way there that's also a possibility. That's so interesting. So what were the other 
things you were trying to teach people with these videos? So we have false dichotomy. What were a few of the other things that you were trying to point out? Uh, the other one was, in, uh, one other one was emotional manipulation, right? The one I just explained. Uh, then there was incoherence, which is mutually exclusive arguments. So, for example, in climate change, um, you get people saying it's not global warming, it's global cooling that's happening. And at the same time, they'll say climate models are bad. We can't predict what will happen to the climate. Like these two arguments rule each other out. You can't use them at the same time, right? Um, the fourth one was ad hominem attacks. So attacking the person, not the argument, right? Which sometimes makes sense. For example, if a tobacco company says vaping is safe, you're like, well, considering your track record, I'm a bit skeptical. Uh, but nonetheless, in other cases, this actually is very manipulative and it isn't something that you would expect a reasonable debater to do. And then the fifth one was uh, scapegoating. So that happens quite often with uh, groups of people who are being held responsible for a very complex problem that has multiple causes and so on. Uh, but singling out one group or one person uh, is a very commonly used manipulation tactic, for example, in hate speech and so on. And from the results of your study, how effective do you think this technique could be if it was rolled out more widely to immunise people against misinformation online? Um, so the, the study was unique in the sense that it demonstrated the actual scalability of this approach on social media. Uh, so we found this, this meaningful effect on YouTube in the sense that we ran an anti-misinformation campaign on YouTube as you actually would. There was no or little to no daylight between what we did and what someone who would actually run an anti-misinformation campaign on YouTube would do. It's pretty much the same thing. So that demonstrates the scalability, which is great. Um, but at the same time, uh, that doesn't mean that we solved the problem, right? For example, we weren't able to look at what happens with how people behave online, let's say. So... We don't know if, for instance, they if they watch the video about emotional manipulation, if they then also start sharing less negative emotional content with each other. So that's a subject for future research. Yeah, very exciting. Well, hopefully we'll see those ads rolled out soon. Thank you very much. That was John Rosenbeek from the University of Cambridge. Fascinating stuff. Now, um, there's been a very big stink in the media over the amount of untreated sewage that's being released along the UK's coastlines. You've probably seen this in the news. And it's going on in some cases without anyone knowing about it, believe it or not. Indeed, one report claims that devices that have been installed by water companies to monitor water quality have failed to pick up a quarter of the occasions when this happened last year. And in some cases, their equipment actually failed 90% of the time. Now, perhaps as a result of this, following a bout of heavy rain, a pollution warning's now gone out across 40 public beaches and swimming spots recently, and this has led to renewed calls for action. Will Tingle spoke to Hugo Tagom, who's the chief executive and co-founder of Surfers Against Sewage, about the potential implications these sewage dumpings could have on public health. We're tracking thousands of sewage pollution events every year at beaches and at rivers. We know that last year alone, water companies in England discharged over 2.6 million hours of sewage pollution, 370,000 separate events. At some of our best loved beaches and bathing waters, we tracked almost 3,500 um, sewage events. And that's sort of between the red and yellow flags where people like to swim and expect never to come into contact with industrial pollution. So if we're now hearing that 
uh, there aren't enough sensors um, and some of the sensors may be faulty or broken, then perhaps what we're dealing with is just the tip of the iceberg for the problem for our beaches and for our coastline and and uh, maybe on a bigger scale for our rivers too. So, you know, we're really concerned. The water industry is presiding over a tidal wave of sewage and it's simply not good enough. And is the reason behind the lack of these monitoring equipments simply that they aren't there or just that they're faulty? The industry now um, has an obligation to monitor and report on its sewage discharges. Clearly, there's a process of installing and managing these sensors. You know, it's these types of sensors that give us the data for the Safer Season River Service, the real-time data that we can give to the public to keep them safe um, and make sure they have the cleanest swimming experience at the beach. But the reasons behind the water industry not yet being fully up to speed with this are are probably multiple. This is about the time it potentially takes to install them and manage them um, and the investment it takes. But they have the money, they have the engineers and they have the resources. So we need to see them moving faster because that information is key to making the investments in the right places to end sewage pollution and protect our rivers and protect our coastline. We don't want any sort of water contamination, particularly in areas that we swim. So what kind of health problems could people be looking at if they were to swim in these waters? People shouldn't ever be sort of exposed to sewage pollution. It can carry all sorts of pathogens that can make people ill, stomach infections, ear, eye, nose, throat infections. And it carries sort of emerging threats like antibiotic resistant bacteria, which we've done studies on with the European Centre for the Environment and Human Health, which shows that regular surfers and swimmers have three times the level of antibiotic resistant bacteria in their guts as the background population. Even if it's diluted, um, it still poses a big threat to human health. Dilution is not a solution. We really need to see the right solutions in place to protect both people and the environment from sewage pollution. Just 14% of our rivers meet good ecological status. Our bathing waters still sadly languish at the bottom of the European bathing water tables. We should be doing much better and aiming to have the best rivers um, in the world and also the best water quality in the world. And aside from holding our water and sewage companies accountable, is there anything else that we could be doing to improve the water quality of our UK coastlines and rivers? This is tightly linked to both the sort of the, the climate issue and the, the rewilding or so the restoration of nature issue. We should be restoring nature. There's a big movement um, to restore both terrestrial and marine ecosystems um, in, in the sea seagrass and um, and oyster beds and um, and kelp forests on land, uh, forests, um, our rivers um, and natural habitats. And those land-based ecosystems can take the pressure off um, water systems. They can slow down water, absorb the water in a more natural way and relieve that pressure on the sewer systems. Personally, people can also make sure they behave responsibly with water, you know, not wasting water, not flushing the wrong things down the loop. But this isn't an individual responsibility sort of issue. This is about an industry that is very profitable, can afford to build the infrastructure and invest in nature-based solutions and make sure they're creating a system that's fit for the future, fit to face climate change and fit both to supply water and protect nature at the same time. Yes, indeed. Hugo Tagholm there. He's the co-founder and the chief executive for Surfers Against Sewage. He was speaking with Will Tingle. Now, we were just talking about sewage, and while sewage is something we healthily try to avoid, our reuse of wastewater 
and sewage might soon be a very important way for us to combat another ongoing crisis, and that is a growing lack of phosphorus that we can use for fertiliser. Because as fossil fuel use declines in line with emissions targets, the supplies of sulphur that that industry produces as a byproduct by desulphurising fuel is also set to dry up. And that means we're going to be short of sulfuric acid, which we use, you've guessed it, to make fertiliser from phosphate-rich rocks, as UCL's Simon Day explains. Sulphur is critical to the production of phosphate fertilisers. Phosphate rock, which is the obvious raw, raw material, is inert and can't be used by plants to any great extent. But if that phosphate rock is treated with sulfuric acid to produce things like phosphoric acid, hydrogen phosphates, phosphate salts like ammonium salt. Those are the usable fertilisers. So sulphur in the form of sulfuric acid is absolutely critical to the production of those fertilisers. And because sulfuric acid is essentially a waste product of the fossil fuel industries, which those industries are essentially giving away, that makes phosphate fertiliser very cheap compared to what its price, say, 40 or 50 years ago. And consequently, there's a tendency to overuse it and we see the environmental damage that results. So as you're saying, it's we're moving away from our use of fossil fuels. So we are anticipating... Over the next few decades, if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, a very great reduction of extraction of fossil fuels from the ground, therefore the processing of those fossil fuels, which begins with the separation of the sulphur component of the fuels, that means that over the next 30 years, we can anticipate a dramatic collapse to maybe a fifth, maybe a tenth, of the current supply of sulphur and at the same time because populations are increasing we're looking at an increase in the demand for phosphate fertilizers and therefore an increase in the demand for sulphur to produce those phosphate fertilizers and also many of the metals that we're going to rely on to enable the transition away from fossil fuels like um, metals for batteries metals for electric motors also require so, you know, use of large amounts of sulfuric acid for their extraction. We need to look at recycling phosphate that we've taken out of the fields in the food that we eat and get that phosphate back to the fields. There are always trade-offs, aren't there? Simon Day there, and that study he was talking about can be found in the Geographical Journal. He was speaking with Will Tingle. Scientists estimate that about 80% of our genes we carry are involved in building the structures of our faces and hence the way we look. And so we've always suspected that potentially, if you find someone who looks very like you, chances are you have a lot of the same genes in common. Now scientists have confirmed that that is the case and it unlocks the possibility of predicting what someone might look like based just on their genetic code. I spoke to Manel Estella from the IJC in Barcelona, who's been comparing people who aren't related, but nevertheless look very much alike. We studied different levels of complexity in cells to know what is the main contributor to having similar faces. Genetics, epigenetics, that is the regulation of DNA, a microbiome, how many bacteria we have and type of bacteria. It's difficult to give a number, but you can imagine that around 
1,000-2,000 genes are relevant for the shape of our face. And there are people out there who aren't twins, they're not even related as far as they know, but they look really, really similar. So why is this? This is our study. Our study really is looking for these people that they look very similar, but they're not related because we have gone back hundreds of years ago. We have seen that these people, they share very similar faces. They are not in any way related by family. And in this case, they share this genetic variant that relates to the shape and volume of our mouth, nose, eyes, cheek, but also to our height and weight, for example. Why do you think that there are these commonalities between people that aren't even related? It's difficult to know why, but the most logical explanation for us is that this is happening by random chance. So there are now so many people in the world that they share these particular genetic sequences that relates to the shape of our face. It is true now that now we have more ways to find these people because the internet and all the apps, the young generations and and the teens, now they're able to catch another person that looks like them. Beyond the face, were there any other characteristics that these individuals had in common in terms of their genes? There were other parts of the body that were related in this case and also some other traits like, for example, the use of tobacco, the smoking, and to be right or left-handed, they were shared. So this probably goes a little bit beyond the face. And you sometimes see people in couples actually look very similar. Sometimes we're attracted to people who look like us. So is there any need to be worried if you're, you know, you're in a relationship with someone who looks a bit like you in terms of potentially having some of these recessive traits that might come together in offspring to produce something which isn't overly great? In theory, from a genetic point of view, it's better that you mix up with somebody that is different. In fact, some people that live together, they start looking similar. And probably it's because they live in the same environment, you know, the same contamination or the same job, they eat the same things. So it's possible that there is some convergence later in, in humans. These things are not inherited, they are acquired, they relate a lot of them to epigenetic changes, the content of the microbiome, etc. And these are things that relate to our lifestyle. So if I find someone who looks like me, say on the other side of the world, I shouldn't be worried that I've got a long lost twin. If it's perfectly identical, you can worry. But being perfectly identical is very difficult. So this is the likelihood. So they look alike but they are not, of course, perfectly identical. You can only be a copycat if you have 100% of your genome. What are the consequences of this work then? Maybe now from DNA, we can think of constructing a face. And this can be important in forensic medicine, for example, to find somebody responsible of a crime just for the DNA able to uh, draw a face. So maybe now there are some data you can start doing that. So if you meet an in-person lookalike, you likely share a lot of similar DNA sequences. Manel Estella talking about his work published in Cell Reports. And we'll wind up this week with our question of the week. And in today's episode, Otis Kingsman is answering this inquiry from listener Candy. I have hyponatremia and it's a result of a medication. How does a drug stop your body from using or absorbing all of the salt that you consume. 
I've always wondered what's happened inside us when we take some form of medication or drug. Here to open things up and reveal what goes on under the skin is Professor of Medicine from Georgetown University, Joe Verbalis. Now, hyponatremia refers not to low sodium in the body. It refers to low sodium concentration in the blood. And that can be caused by two different mechanisms. The first is, in fact, a excess loss of body sodium. But the more common etiology is an excess of body water due to the inability of the kidney to maximally excrete all the water consumed. Hyponatremia is generally caused by a low salt diet rather than medication. On the off chance, however, it's due to the drugs causing the kidneys to not dilute the urine, leaving the concentration of salt in the blood to be much higher. If you drink a lot of fluid, I don't care what kind of fluid it is, your body reacts by suppressing the secretion of the hormone from the pituitary called arginine vasopressin that controls uh, kidney water excretion. When you suppress the level of ABP, the kidney can excrete up to 20 liters a day, which protects us against becoming hyponatremic. Excess water that would dilute the salt in our blood too much is put into urine to be excreted through the kidneys. But many drugs cause an inability of the pituitary to completely suppress antidiuretic hormone. And in that case, the kidney cannot maximally excrete the free water. And if that occurs, then if more water than that is consumed, then that will accumulate in the body. That will then dilute the sodium concentration down to a lower level, which we call hyponatremia. Most medication doesn't affect our ability to absorb salt. It affects our inability to excrete the maximum amount of water from the body. So, Candy, most medications do not cause the body to fail to absorb or use sodium. They cause the body to retain excess water. And the treatment for that is not to take more sodium in. It is to limit the amount of water that is ingested. Again, not necessarily only water, but any fluids that are ingested, because most fluids uh, are largely water. Thank you to Professor Joe Verbalis for helping us find the answer. Next week, we'll be splashing about in this science question from listener Ed. Is it recommended to drink cola after swimming in a river? And does it really reduce the risk of getting an upset stomach? And if you at home have a question you'd like us to supply the answer to, or indeed you have an answer you can supply to us, why not get in touch? It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. There's a question of the week board there for you to take part in. And that's all we have time for this week. But come back next time where we'll be taking a look at water distribution. With droughts declared across large areas of England over the summer months, how can we get more water to the places that need it most? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.